Welcome to 340B Insight from 340B Health. Hello from Washington, D.C., and welcome back to 340B Insight, the podcast about the 340B drug pricing program. I'm David Glendinning with 340B Health. Before we go to our feature interview, we will note that as of this recording, our legal team is anticipating the first of what likely are several imminent federal court rulings on the 340B contract pharmacy dispute. If you are a 340B Health member or partner, please keep an eye on your email for our analysis of those decisions as they occur. Our guest today is Scott Milner, Senior Director of Pharmacy at St. Luke's Health System. Like many of you, Scott and his colleagues have been an integral part of the response to recent spikes in COVID-19 cases. We wanted to have him back on the show to hear his firsthand perspective on the latest stage of the pandemic response. When Miles Goldman recently sat down again with Scott to see how he and his colleagues in Idaho were doing, he had much to say. Here's that conversation. Thank you, David. I'm joined by Scott Milner, the Senior Director of Pharmacy at St. Luke's Health System. Scott, welcome back to 340B Insight. Thanks for having me. Scott, it is good to be speaking with you again, but I do wish it were under much better circumstances. We, we had you on in January and we spoke about St. Luke's response to COVID and the vaccine rollouts. And with the surge of the Delta variant, we thought this was a good time to check in with you about all of that. But first, just to help refresh our listeners' memories, your system includes several 340B hospitals. Tell us more about who they serve. Yes, we are located in the south and south central and southwestern area of Idaho. That's where our hospitals are. We do have clinics in eastern Oregon. We have a few dish facilities here around the greater Boise area. We have a sole community in the center of the state in Twin Falls in addition to a number of critical access hospitals peppered around in uh, different communities. And in terms of 340B savings, you use it for a bunch of different things, right? We do. We set up a 340B assistance count you know, for different patients to make sure if they needed help with certain medications. We started with some lifestyle and cardiovascular risks, you know, trying to make sure that we didn't have any readmissions. We did smoking cessation programs, and then we've gone into other uh, efforts that we have across the system. One of my favorite parts is we have about 1,500 patients on a given month that are on assistance from our 340B funds, and we dispense their medications. They don't, you know, they financially qualify, so they are able to get all the medications they need to try to get better and, again, stay out of our hospitals. Thank you for sharing all those details with us. Let's talk now more, unfortunately, about Delta. How did the Delta variant affect the community St. Luke serves? You know, it's interesting because most of our COVID time, we hear about things that are happening either across the world or across other areas in the country. And so it lags a little bit before it hits here. So we were tracking earlier in the summer how Delta was impacting other systems or other countries. And really in August, uh, even until today, it's been really uh, hard and heavy, meaning we are seeing more reasons to test. You know, some of those are related to school and work needs, but we're having more symptomatic patients than ever before, and we have the highest positivity rate. In addition to that, we're seeing the Delta variant is just a mess with how many patients it's impacting on a severe level. Many may know that Idaho as a whole has declared an emergency state to deal with the COVID, you know, overrunning our hospitals and health systems. 
And so we've watched it happen and then it finally hit us, you know, pretty hard. And so our hospital has repurposed, you know, other rooms, education rooms. Some of our infusion rooms got made into an extra ICU bed. And so we're seeing more patients hospitalized than ever in the history of our system, from what I can tell. And then the large chunk of those being very critically ill COVID patients. So there were a few weeks where you saw it kind of approaching and then the spike happened. Yeah. And it was kind of depressing because in June and July, we started to feel like maybe things were going to calm down and maybe we could have a summer and who knows, we may go to a college football game without you know any notion of COVID being present. But then yeah, as August hit, it kind of hit right with it. So right in time with back to school and everything else. Actually, prior to going back to school, the, the COVID surge started to hit us pretty hard. What new ways have emerged to care for patients with COVID-19 since we spoke at the beginning of the year? So we've stood up extra monoclonal antibody or MAB clinics to increase our infusion capacity. Part of my role, I oversee the infusion services in the non-oncology space. We saw almost 3,000 patients with about a little over a third of those being COVID positive patients. Can you tell us a little bit more about those clinics? Yeah. So, you know, in some of our larger facilities, you know, where we have a large number of patients, we, we just couldn't find a really good way to get these patients seen. We tried to do it at the end of the day when our other patient populations had left. We you know, asking nurses to stay later. It's been difficult because some of those nurses actually have been pulled into staff our hospitals because our hospital staffing teams are, are stretched very thin. So one of the things we did is we actually, with Regenco being able to be administered sub-Q instead of just the IV, we set up pharmacist mediated or pharmacist administering Regenco in a sub-Q fashion. And we talked about it a little bit in July, but there was not a demand. And then right the first week of September, we said it's time. So we've stood up three clinics to accommodate the Regenco patients. And two of those, uh, my pharmacy team members and peers are, you know, it's not typical or common, but it's within our scope. So they're administering, they're helping draw a label, administer, and then clean the suites. And our nursing peers are, when they can come and help there, they're present with us, but then sometimes they're, you know, pulled into the other nursing duties they needed. So yes, we've been able to find resources, but it's come at a cost, both at a financial cost to the system and then also, to be very frank, an emotional cost to some of our team members. It's sometimes very hard to care for patients who are very sick. It's hard to have a patient come into our clinic and realize that the COVID is, progression has taken them to a point that we can't give them therapy and we you know, get them into an ambulance and find out that they're admitted or on hospice. And just that we're a part of that story, it, it takes a toll. Are there other ways the health system has adapted to add resources? Yes. One of the things with the emergency status that we're at today, we've had to stand down a lot of what we call elective procedures. If someone takes offense to that, and I hope you do, because you know screening for colon cancer and endoscopy or getting a knee or a hip replaced because it's been giving you issues for a long period of time, and now that surgery or that procedure has been prolonged, it's a lose-lose scenario. So we have patients who have been scheduled for different procedures or medical uh, to treat something that they have a need for, but now those those procedures had to be stood down as well. So yeah, we've had to redeploy people. You know, I have my 340B team and some of my other people that help with medication assistance. You know, we, it's not like we stood up a clinic and we could hire positions. So some of my business teams, we've said, unfortunately, COVID is a higher priority than doing some of the medication authorizations or 
some of the other work. So we've had to redeploy even our pharmacy business specialists and our business team. And so some of the things that we've tried to do to offset the manufacturer things that they're doing in the 340B space, we've had to redeploy my 340B team and say, hey, I know that you normally do this work. I need you to come over here and help me draw and label syringes and make sure patients are treated. So a lot of things have been stood down and deprioritized to make sure we're treating COVID patients first and foremost. And that's been painful. It's hard. People like their day job, but also it's been really inspiring to see them step up to that task and make sure that they do it with a good attitude. And, you know, some of my employees that I've asked to be redeployed, you know, they put on the gowns, the PPE, the masks. It's not romantic. You know, you come out with your face looks all murky and, you know, it's like wearing a garbage bag. Uh, You're sweating all day because you're side by side with 11 COVID positive patients in a suite and they've been champions. They've done a really good job in making sure that we we can get done what we need to. I know I'm so thankful for what they're doing and obviously in many other hospitals too across the country. And and you brought up a couple different points there that I want to make sure we we get to in this conversation. And I'm glad you mentioned patients with chronic conditions because what do you think the continued threat of COVID-19 mean for those patients with chronic conditions having the ability to manage their health, you know, in the long run? You know, I, I mentioned that we have 340B assistance for patients that qualify. We have a number of programs that help patients. And we're not talking about someone that just doesn't want to pay a bill or they have insurance and good paying jobs. The bulk of these individuals are sometimes people that make, you know, 10 to 15 dollars an hour or their insurance is really in a, in a plan that puts the patient at risk and they're choosing between paying a mortgage or rent or getting care and so we have patients that fall into that bucket frequently and what's really been hard in the last month is that we've redeployed individuals we've asked ourselves do we have enough people to treat you know our existing infusion patients do we need to turn therapies away so we can treat the covid patients Fortunately, we've not had to ration that care yet, but now we're running into, well, who's helping these individuals with their authorization, with some of the other financial implications that if they don't get that covered, that the the bill will foot to them and then they're going to be faced with the decision of, do I get care or do I pay, you know, for whatever scenario. Can you tell us more about what St. Luke's has been facing from the drug manufacturers denying those 340B discounts on community pharmacies? This this has been going on for more than a year now. Yeah, and and it couldn't happen at a worse time, you know, again. And I want to point out that there are some manufacturers that are really good players in this space. I, 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 I think that sometimes maybe that isn't acknowledged. While there are some that are easy to pick apart their names and who they are from the media or from you know challenging HRSA or some of the legal battles that continue forward, we do have some manufacturers that are good. And I, I just want to let everyone know that those manufacturers, I specifically make sure they know we appreciate them. We appreciate their support. We also are very vocal about what we're doing with those funds because, you know, it's not like this is a taxpayer, you know, funded program. And so, as a manufacturers that meet with us, we say, hey, by the way, this is where the dollars are going. This is how it's contributing to our area and our patient population. But really, in the last year, I feel like it's a bit chaotic. You know, every time we feel like we know which manufacturers are having issues, another one adds to the letter. Uh, we then try to figure out how it's going to work. I'm seeing that our independently owned pharmacies, honestly, are the ones that are probably hurt the most because of 
you know, whether it's, you know, they have to submit information or determine, you know, some of the claim information either to a PBM or on behalf of the manufacturer. Uh, many of these independently owned pharmacies are struggling to understand and they feel very threatened. Uh, there's been a few that have tried to say, hey, I don't know how to deal with this. We're just trying to keep our stores open. And they've tried to terminate. So we go back with them and we work and we try to make sure that they don't shoulder that risk, that they know that it's our program, that we're the ones that hold the compliance and that we'll do anything we can to maintain it and make it equitable for both of us to continue forward. But again, the more complexity that it adds, the more staff that it adds, the more risk that it adds in what the manufacturers are calling for. So Right now, it's impacting a lot of our rural communities because, again, the independently owned pharmacies in those areas who are key community members are very much struggling to keep up with what are we doing with this now? What's the current update? And then we're also you know, working with our legal team and external legal consultants to issue letters and, and work with our elected officials to make sure we're cleanly communicating the damage that this is having. That's all good to know. And meanwhile... While this is all going on with with caring for patients during Delta and the drug manufacturers denying the discounts, as you just spoke about, we're still hearing a lot about the vaccines as well. Are vaccination distribution efforts continuing? And if so, how is that all working? We send out about 46 coolers a week uh, to various sites across Idaho. And lately, the demand has been high. We're starting to see the boosters uh, populations come through. In fact, I I think I read two articles today saying that boosters are outpacing first and second doses in in a lot of areas, and and we're no exemption to that. So in Idaho, we have a large unvaccinated population, and then we have a very vigilant population that's making sure that they take their opportunity, taking their shot, so to speak. And so right now our booster demand is high, which is nice because we also have our flu vaccine campaign, which is up because it's October. It's that time of year. So our vaccine work, again, in July, we thought it's going to kind of cool off, maybe taper away. But right now it's ramping back up. And if we just administer boosters to the patients and the people that we've administered so far this year, we had 120,000 shots coming in addition to anyone else that decides to get a first or second. I also want to point out, since we talked we did something awesome in May as well. We actually purchased an RV, and I actually got the opportunity to drive it around this wonderful state of Idaho. Because again, we did large volume, you know, thousands of patients on a given Saturday, but we found patients in different areas of our state or communities, or sometimes people that had a language barrier. So we drove to them, took the vaccines to them. It was very different because we, you know, if we got 10 or 20, we counted that as a victory. We partnered with the Mexican consulate here in Boise. We did a day at their building. We had patients that continued for the next two weeks as we drove around the state that heard through their networks that, hey, you partnered with the Mexican consulate. So I came, when you came into my town, I went and got vaccinated. You must have so many stories from driving that mobile clinic around the state. Is there, is there any one story that just stands out to you? One of my favorites, there was a day where we're out of high school and, you know, we we were really busy first part of the day and then we're there until, you know, late into the evening. There was one of the high school kids who walked past and and he asked us, what are you doing? Oh, we're doing vaccines and asked a few other questions. And I was like, have you been vaccinated? He's like, no, I don't think my family would let me. I was like, well, how old are you? He's like, I'm 18. I'm like, well, you know, talk to you with your family. No, we'll be here until, you know, seven or so at night. And about an hour and a half later, a car pulled up and he got out and he's like, can you tell the same information you shared with me to my mom and grandma? So I walked over to the car and I said, 
you know, there's no cost to you. There's the process, uh, you know, here's the information. They have a lot of questions about things that they've heard somewhere in the media. And I, I shared some of our safety information, you know, from the vaccines we had administered. And I watched the, all three of them get out of the car and come and get vaccinated. And so I saw that enabled us to take some of the barriers away in ways that, you know, we knew that if we brought it to people, there would be those that would be like, all right, I'll get it since it's here. But it was really fun to actually talk to people on their turf at their food market or whatever venue that we went to and and be able to enable the opportunity. Well, that's all wonderful to hear about the successes you had. And you just mentioned people having questions about the vaccine. And, and you told us the last time we spoke that the vaccine's greatest side effect is hope. How have you been able to communicate uh, that to people who have questions? You know, the hardest thing is in the last few months, things like vaccine mandates have been in the news and there that's added uh, a lot more tension to the discussion. And some of it's good and some of it's bad. On one hand, it's forced some people to, you know, do some research. And I've had a number of conversations with friends and family and coworkers, all, all inclusive, about what the data really is. Now, I've had some friends who chose to remain unvaccinated, who unfortunately have passed away, and it happened very fast. I had a coworker who sat in my office, sat in my office in August, and told me that she felt that the the vaccine was poisoning the people around us. And I begged her to be vaccinated. I answered the questions and she cited a number of sources that she's turned to. And I begged her to talk to one of her primary provider that she trusted to get that provider's input or information. Unfortunately, she contracted COVID and has passed away. We have her memorial this weekend. And so I, I think on one hand, uh, we continue to have a lot of discussion. Every time I get into a dialogue around this and people say, well, vaccines are political, I, the plea I always have is I, I ask them what the sources are. I ask them to turn to medical professionals that they know, not someone who is a guest speaker on a, a podcast even like this. Don't even trust me if you're listening to my voice. Talk to a doctor that you know and trust. I always share that in our hospitals, while we're, we're max capacity, we're yet to be full of people with vaccine injury. Unfortunately, the flip side, what we are full is we have, by and large, a large population of unvaccinated individuals who've contracted COVID who are critically ill, in many cases, fighting for their life. And so while vaccines brought hope in January, unfortunately, the overtones of, you know, it's, it's a little heavier right now. And not all conversations are welcome. Well, Scott, I'm very sorry to hear about your, your friends and, and your colleagues. This must be so difficult to be going through all of this. How have you personally been able to keep, keep going and, and keep doing all the great work that you're doing on a day in, day out basis? You know, there's there's two things. One of the things I love, uh, I have the ability to actually coach one of my kids in a sports team. Absolutely, that's one time of my day or my week when I go to practice and I focus on my daughter and her player, peer players, and make sure that we're ready for the next game or tournament. I feel like that's helped me, you know, separate some of the tension from my work. One of the things that I'm fortunate is, you know, since COVID came about, you know, we actually came home from the 340B coalition in San Diego in early 2020 and immediately dug into COVID work. You know, I didn't take a lot of time off for a, a long period of time. In fact, working a lot of weekends and those Saturdays were sun up to sundown plus some. I have a boss who actually required me to take the bulk of July off. So I had all this PTO saved up and all these reasons why I couldn't leave. And she semi told me, forced me to take it. So most of July, I only worked one or two days a week. So I was able to backpack uh, with my family and my kids. 
variety of places, you know, from Wyoming, Montana, Utah, and Idaho, uh, parts of Northern California and Oregon. I'm glad you, you've certainly gotten some well-deserved uh, downtime and all of that. Scott, I just want to thank you for taking this time, especially in a period where you're still on a day-in, day-out basis dealing with all of this, taking the time to speak with us today. No problem. Thank you. And I, I appreciate the work that you guys do in, in helping us with our 340B program and then telling the story of what it's like out here on the front lines. Our thanks again to Scott Milner for continuing to tell his powerful story. We remain immensely grateful for him and the rest of the dedicated professionals serving on the front lines of this pandemic. And we hope that Idaho and the rest of the nation soon will be back to the point where backpacking trips and ball games are the norm again, and not just a brief respite from weariness and heartbreak. We want to help you tell your stories from the 340B world. If you have an idea for a future episode, please email us at podcast at 340Bhealth.org. We will be back in just about a week with our next episode. As always, thanks for listening, and be well. Thanks for listening to 340B Insight. Subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, visit our website at 340bpodcast.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at 340B Health and submit a question or idea to the show by emailing us at podcast at 340bhealth.org.